Calvin Coolidge, yet another Calvin that I like quite a bit, was known for being a man of very few words. And there are lots of cute stories about this, some of them apocryphal, some of them probably true. One of those stories that I've always liked is there was a day that uh, President Coolidge went to church and his wife stayed in the White House. And when he got back, she asked him, how was church? And he said, fine. And she said, well, how was the sermon? He said, good. She said, well, what did the preacher talk about? And he said, sin. And she said, well, what about sin? And he said, he's against it. That seems like the kind of summary one might be tempted to throw at a passage like this. It's about greed. Jesus is against it. Don't be greedy. You all know that. Away we go. No such luck. You see, Jesus goes way beyond that. He doesn't give a, uh, he gives a, a basic uh, description of greed and it's dangerous, but it is surrounded by more content. In fact, there's, there's kind of four elements present here. It starts with a narrative, then there is a command and a proverb, and then finally a parable to illustrate the whole thing and hammer it home. Here in this passage, we have a one, two, three, four punch to make sure that we are on guard against all kinds of greed and covetousness. And it begins with a man coming to Jesus as he's traveling throughout Judea and making the request, Lord, would you do me a favor and help separate, divide my inheritance between me and my brother? Our father has died, we have our inheritance, and now we need someone to divide it. And in that context, there were people who were dividers of inheritances, probably like executors of wills today. And it might seem a little odd to go to a religious figure for that, but it wasn't. Uh, it was considered kind of an honor for a rabbi to be recognized as that kind of authority. Remember, synagogue-like permeated community life, permeated uh, the family life, everything kind of surrounded and revolved around the synagogue. And so these uh, religious leaders were looked to for many things in this regard. And for someone to come to you and say, I recognize your authority to stand here and arbitrate in this dealing, in this maybe disagreement, it was supposed to be a huge honor. Now, there were standard divisions. We read in some later documents, the younger son would usually get a third of the inheritance. The older son would get two thirds. Probably in this case, this guy's coming to Jesus because he wants his brother to buy him out of the family business. You can have it, I just want my money, or vice versa. And Jesus could have done this. But to him, you see, it wouldn't have been lifting him up and giving him some new honor. For Jesus, this would be to bring him down a notch a bit, to kind of damn him with faint praise as someone who can listen to squabbles and sort them out. For Jesus, this would have been outside of his calling. I think I see here, by the way, a bit of a parallel with how churches often will sort of drift away from our sphere, our calling, and say, well, there's a lot of important stuff we could be doing. We could be doing that. We could be speaking on this. We could be over here in this political realm, or we could put all our effort into a, a social cause or, or this sort of thing. And, and yes, there are some things that are very laudable, but you have to remember that there are spheres that God has ordained. Many people are called to work in the kingdom of man and glorify God in their work there. The church is called to proclaim the gospel, to adorn the gospel with deeds of love and mercy. And if we start getting into political stuff over here or a bunch of other uh, tangential causes over here, trust me, the world's not going to take up the slack and start preaching the gospel for us because we're busy with something else. 
In fact, Calvin read this passage, not Calvin Coolidge, but John Calvin, and thought that that was part of the warning kind of baked into that narrative. As these guys come to Jesus, he doesn't bite, though. He doesn't buy into it because, first of all, this guy doesn't want a mediator. He wants an advocate, right? He wants someone who's going to say, okay, uh, he gets a good shake here. Why else would he come to Jesus and be the one to bring the rabbi in? They're treating Jesus as though he has an earthly kingdom, which makes sense. They didn't know any better. But his kingdom is spiritual, and it spans the entire world. And ironically, Jesus will have a dividing ministry, but not dividing inheritances. Rather, we read in Hebrews that his word comes and divides even marrow and bone and soul and spirit and rightly divide the truth. He will come in and he will be a mediator, but not between business partners, rather between God and man. And he is going to come as an advocate for us, but an advocate in the presence of the Father, presenting those who love and obey and believe in him as perfectly righteous. So they're thinking too small here. Jesus doesn't get drawn into it all. He just turns to him. And this is one of those verses I have to always read twice. Anytime a verse starts with man, comma. I first read it as, man, who made me? An arbitrator or a judge between you. But probably he's saying, man, who made me? A little bit less colloquial and a little bit less informal. But all the same, his objection is, this is not my position. You're trying to wedge me into a place that I don't quite belong. I don't quite fit. But he will use it as a teaching opportunity. So he turns to everyone, to the people, and begins to teach on what he sees going on in this guy's heart. The problem he's addressing is that apparently this guy loves money and wants more stuff and wants to solidify his holdings so very much that it's in danger of hurting his family relationships. He seems to value money more than his relationship with his brother, even. And so Jesus, in verse 15, turns to the people and says to them, here's the command, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, the NASB and the NIV translate this as all greed. And there's some overlap there. I think covetousness might be a better translation. Very woodenly translated, the word here means to have a bigger share or a larger amount. Someone's wanting a bigger and bigger and bigger share. You see how that fits very tightly with the idea of saying, Jesus, divide my inheritance with my brother. I'd like a bigger share of this. Be on guard against that. And of course, all of us can say, yeah, yeah, we know. Be on guard against that. It's very dangerous to be very greedy. We've read Ecclesiastes 5, and we understand it. Most people who are in, in any way experienced in life know the truth of what Solomon writes there in Ecclesiastes 5.10 when he says, whoever loves money will never have enough. Whoever desires wealth will never be satisfied. This too is meaningless. We've read 1 Timothy 6, in which we're warned not that money is the root of all evil, but that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It roots, the roots go down and a lot of different kinds, all different kinds of evil can grow up. The Greek word there, woodenly translated, is a love of shiny metal. In the Greek, it's blingophilia. No, it's not. Just seeing if you're awake there. It's philagoria, but it means the love of or even like close friendship with shiny metals. You, you want more of those shiny metals. You've got kind of gold sickness 
or, or, or your money crazy. I think that the best translation is probably that old King James word, avarice, that we don't use all that much these days. Avarice, a lust, not a love, because you can't have any kind of real pure love for money, a lust for more and more and more. And just like it's been said that lust is trying to slake one's thirst by having more and more salt, like, oh, I'm still thirsty. Well, this one's really salty. Let me have another chip. Oh, I'm still thirsty. And thinking that at some point you'll be satisfied, the same thing happens when we get wrapped up in this kind of avarice, greed, and covetousness. Wanting what others have, wanting what we do not, just, just constantly lusting for a bigger and bigger piece of the pie. We don't talk much about this even in the church, and yet we read in Ephesians 5.3, we were in Ephesians just a year ago, you remember in Ephesians 5 we saw that greed was listed right alongside sexual immorality and impurity in terms of difficult, hard to break, and very serious, dangerous, deadly sins. We, we think, hold on though, this, this one's just in the heart, right? I mean, yeah, it's in the Ten Commandments, but it's the tenth one. Obviously, God had nine and said, I guess I need, uh, yeah, I don't even want to steal stuff. No, it's one of the Ten Commandments. In the heart, that's where the root of all kinds of evil begins to grow. And out of it comes all sorts of sin if we allow covetousness to begin to take hold of us, take root in us. Again, though, we don't treat it nearly as seriously as other sins. It's cute. It's funny. Right? Oh, yeah. Jim... Whose memorial service we're having right now. He sure loved all of his stuff. And he had to buy more and more and more. And we all chuckle and go, oh, wasn't that funny? No, that's tragic. That's, that's tragic if that's the root in the heart, especially of a believer. I, I'll tell you, it's odd to me that you see again and again pastors removed from their positions for a sexual affair or for embezzling money. Both of those are right reasons to remove a pastor, but never... Because that pastor loves money. And you say, yeah, it's hard to prove. It's just, it's kind of hidden. All these other things in the Ten Commandments seem to be stuff you can observe. But this one, well, eventually it begins to bear fruit. And these days, many of the biggest name pastors trade on coveting. They say, all those, all those things you secretly lust after in your heart, more and more and more money and possessions and wealth and, and honor, those are the things God really wants to give you. Follow me and I'll teach you how God wants to give you those things. What blasphemy that is. Jesus tells us, no, be on guard against these things. Then he gives us this proverb. For a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. We were just singing that, weren't we? My worth is not in what I own. Not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. Your worth is not in the abundance of your possessions. If you take nothing else away from this this morning, take that, because those are the actual words of Jesus. My worth is not in what I own. Say that with me. My worth is not in what I own. You may need to remind yourself of that ten times this week. The abundance of my material possessions, the abundance of my accomplishments, the abundance of any of these things that I think of as mine. That's not where my value comes from. That's not where my worth is found. Jesus is so careful. Be on guard knowing your worth is not in the abundance of your possessions. And again, everyone says, yes, agreed. Of course, we all know this. This is common sense. 
Kids know this. They don't have to go to church. They get it in school. We tell them it's not good to be materialistic. You should be, you know, out there helping people, etc., etc. And yet, in the way that we arrange our lives, it often becomes quite clear that we do believe it deep down. Starts early. I, for more than two decades, from when I was 19 until I was 40, I almost every single summer went up to Lake Louise, was camp pastor for the 7th and 8th grade camp. So I got literally a generation's worth of observing how kids even that age are constantly comparing with each other what they own and valuing themselves based on that. Now, I might change uh, from thing to thing. It might evolve. These days, it's probably even far less. uh, I mean, I've got this phone. I remember the first time, by the way, I saw a kid with a cell phone, 13 years old at camp. I thought, what the world? This kid running IBM? Is he a drug dealer? What's going on here? Why do you have a cell phone? And then I saw they all had them. What's going on here? They were comparing them. Look at this one. Mine plays MP3s. Mine does video. Mine divides by zero. Mine's amazing. Look at this. Mine's really little. Remember when they used to have to be really small in order to be good? And and that's normal. I mean, it's not normal, but it's normal. When I was a kid, it was in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was about that age, it was pants. Weird generation. It's all about the pants. You had to have MC Hammer pants, parachute pants, really, really crazy, bright, busy designs, lines overlapping a whole lot and stuff like that. Bright colors. They had to be the right MC Hammer pants. They couldn't be no name. They had to be skids or lesser degree, bebop baggies. Anybody remember this? Probably not. I'm, I'm, I'm... Remember Heather? No? All right. Well, I'll tell you what, this was, this was how it worked. And then as soon as those went away, it was Z Cavaricis, like AC Slater pants, pleats on pleats on pleats on pleats on pleats on pleats. Why? I don't know. It doesn't matter. If it wasn't pants, it would have been something else. It would have been some other way to compare ourselves to one another. These days, maybe it's less fungible, less tangible, and it's look how many subscribers I have or followers I have or how much of an influence I have. It's still saying, here's what I have. Here is my worth. What is yours? We can quantify it. We can compare. And Jesus says the the abundance, not of your money, but of your possessions. And I think that's telling because there's lots of things that can count as possessions. And I think there's an awful lot of people today who don't have any money. They're way, way, way in the hole, but they've got a lot of possessions because that's how you show the world you're successful. You have a, a very low negative, negative net worth, and yet in a lot of things. And even listen to the words I'm using. Negative net worth, negative worth, that's not even a good way to talk about people. You go on Google and say, what is Bruce Springsteen worth? Google doesn't even blink. It just says $81 million. It doesn't say, wait, what do you mean by that? How do I value a person made in God's image? No, $81 million. Our worth is not in the abundance of our possessions. After then, a narrative and a command and a proverb, he comes in with the parable, the illustration And it is about a man who has a a land that one year produces plentifully. He has a bumper crop. I want you to notice, first and foremost, this guy did not do anything wrong to get the bumper crop. He just had a good year. Good for him. We don't begrudge him that. Should have a good year sometimes. God is good. He has great mercy on us. And we have what we call common grace, where his rain falls on the just and unjust alike. Praise the Lord. This guy had a good year. That's not the problem. The problem is that he has so much surplus 
that even all of his barns will not hold it. And he stops and he says to himself, what should I do with all the extra? And he has a choice before him. Either he can say, I've been blessed greatly by God. How can I then use this to bless others? Or he can turn it back on himself and say, how can I keep on blessing myself to the point where I don't even have to think about where I'll get my next meal or work or do anything. I'll be on easy street. So he tears down his barns and builds bigger barns to hold all of this grain. That's what he does with his good year. What do you do when you have an unexpected bonus or dividend or opportunity or something great that falls in your lap? Do you stop and say, is there a reason God gave me this that I might use it for his glory to help someone, to, to bring the gospel somewhere, to help ease someone's suffering or, or to find someone who's struggling, give them a little relief and show them the love of God? Or do you say to yourself, hmm, this is an opportunity to up my lifestyle, ratchet it up a bit. I was already living above my means, but now I can live above even higher means. That's the American dream kind of way, the automatic default. I've got more. I, I need to live bigger, faster, drive a nicer car, live in a bigger house, etc., etc. That's automatic. By the way, in the scriptures, the principle that we have again and again reinforced for us is contentment. Paul says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances, whether I have much or nothing. I will be content. I will give thanks to God. Contentment is the antidote to greed. If you can be content with what God has given you when you've got nothing, and you can be content with what God has given you when you have a lot, greed will have no hold on you. It will be much easier to be on guard against all sorts of covetousness. Well, that's not the route this guy goes. Starting in verse 17, he says to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This guy is so obsessed with himself. And you hear it in his language. Look at the words he uses. Look at all the first-person singular pronouns in here. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to emphasize those. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. At the very end there, he starts saying you, but he's talking to himself, so it doesn't really count. He is really into his, if, This guy's an egomaniac. I say ego, not ego, because in the Greek, which this is originally written in Greek, the word for I is ego, where we get our word ego. Very, very into himself. Only in, in this passage, when you read it in the Greek, I always start in the original language and read it out loud. Sometimes I'll hear like alliteration and rhymy things and, and stuff in there that, that you, you might otherwise miss. And when you read it out loud, you hear again and again, not ego, but actually the possessive form, my. In the Greek, it's moo. Moo, 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 again and again. This guy's internal monologue sounds like stinking mad cow disease. Okay, moo all over the place. And as he's doing this, we say, well, okay, this guy's wicked, right? He's a bad example for us. Do I really need to worry about that? 
How often do I think in moo, 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 me, 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 ego, ego, my terms? And do I need to be on guard against it? Well, yeah, Jesus said I do. In fact, as you read the Gospel of Luke, and you probably remember when we studied through the whole thing in 2011, it wasn't that long ago, we saw that there was kind of a grid that Jesus is using based on what we call the parable of the soils. Four different kinds of soil. A guy goes and he sows seed and it lands on different kinds of soils. There's the stuff that lands on the hard earth next to the road and the devil picks it up right away. The gospel doesn't have any effect whatsoever. The birds are the, the devil in that one. Then there's the stuff that lands on good soil and produces a great crop, like 10, 30, 100 times uh, what was sown. And it's, it's amazing. In the middle, though, are a couple of other categories that pop up right away and they receive this news gladly. Oh, Jesus died for me. But they never really bear fruit. One of them is thorny soil. Starts to grow and it grows quickly and it grows right away. But in comes the thorns that choke out the growth before there's any fruit. And Jesus, as he explains this parable, says those thorns are the worries, the riches, and the pleasures of this life. The kind of stuff that is distracting this man. He's all about all the stuff that is 100% exhaustively, exclusively rooted in this life. It becomes a great distraction for him. In fact, you know, I, I want to try something here. All this mooing this guy is doing is problematic, and it makes it so that he can't really hear from God and tell the words God is saying is, you fool, your life will be required of you this very night. Yeah, at that point, you have no choice but to listen. I'm going to try this, and I need full participation from everybody. I'm going to read a little passage from Scripture, and I want all of you to moo just as loud and exuberantly as you can, okay? And I mean really moo. And I want you to moo until I give you the sign. This is the sign. That means stop. It means stop, Sean. It means don't keep mooing. All right? And I want you to see if you can move with all your heart and all your gusto and still hear and internalize what I am reading. And go, move. Better, okay. That's weird cows, but all right. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Do your best to come to me soon. For Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And go Keep mowing! And it's gone to... You, I, I can't even take this seriously. You don't sound like any cows I've ever heard. <laughs> but when you come, bring the cloak I left. Carpus and Troas also booked... Okay, stop that... You see how impossible it is to give yourself to mooing and obsessing over me, me, mine, mine, and also even hear what God would say to our souls because it requires us to look away from ourselves, to lay down our lives, take up our cross, and follow him. To put aside these things that are transitory, that are even now disappearing, fleeting things, that as soon as they appear, they're like a mist, and they are gone. Mooing and following Jesus are not compatible. Speaking of mooing, did you know there is a bird called the cow bird? 
It's a very common bird in many parts of America, but it is unique in one way. There are lots of birds that will occasionally lay an egg in a different bird's nest. Cowbirds exclusively lay their eggs in other birds' nests. They don't ever make nests for themselves. They're, they're like ninjas. They'll wait till a bird is away. They'll see a nest with some eggs in it. They'll go in, pop one in, and then fly away. And then that bird comes back and says, oh, I must have miscounted. That cowbird egg will first hatch before the others. It will be bigger and stronger than the others. It will be fed more, given more attention. Mother birds usually give the most attention to the, the young that look like they're going to have the best chance of survival. And they'll feed this other bird that's not even really theirs and even begin to neglect their own little chicks and birds. It's really quite sad. And if there's one of the other birds that is a threat, when there's a chance, the cowbird will push it out of the nest. It's very loud. It's demanding. It, in fact, the reason they call it a cowbird is because it makes that noise. You've probably heard. I'm kidding. That's not true. But the rest of it is true. There are cowbirds and they come in and they take the attention away from what these birds should be putting their resources, their lives, their attention into and say, no, give it to me. Moo, moo, me, me. We need to learn how to kill the cowbirds in our own lives and in our own hearts. You know, when we look at Scripture, we see again and again the truth that the things of this world are going to do nothing for us. We've even got that little proverb, you can't take it with you, which, by the way, was stolen from the Psalms. Psalm 4 says, don't fear the man who becomes rich, for when he goes down to the grave, he will bring nothing with him. We know the truth of that, and yet we often think like this guy. You know, I walk around estate sales. My wife likes estate sales. When I go with her, I think she, she's always on edge because she knows I'm going to have this moment of like panic. Like, this is fun, but this is someone's whole life. They, they got all this stuff over their whole life, and now people are buying it for pennies on the dollar, and life is so short, and oh my gosh, I'm almost halfway to 90, you know, ah! They say, all right, just go wait in the car. But it's a picture for us of how in a moment... All that you acquire, like Jesus asks here, when, when I require this very night, when I require your life of you, who's going to own all your stuff? Solomon laments in Ecclesiastes, you work your whole life to build something, to, to get this pile, this mountain of possessions, these palaces and all these things. You die, you hand it off, best case scenario to your son who didn't work for it, doesn't value it like you did and may squander it. And we look at that and we say, well, what... What are we supposed to do? Just live paycheck to paycheck? Is that biblical? Hey, I'm just trying to build up some security here. And that is actually what this guy's doing as well, although he's got a different spin on it. He wants security. He wants to make sure he never has to think again of what he has to do to live. He'll be on easy street. He's thinking actually of retiring. This is one of the very, very few references to retirement in all of Scripture. And it's not a very pretty picture. So, Pastor Zach, you're saying it's wrong to retire? No! Not if your heart is in the right place. Not if you're saying, I'm moving from one chapter of my life to another. Great! And in this next chapter, just like in the last one, I will do all I can in order to praise the name of Jesus with how I live, with my lips, my thoughts, my actions, to as far as my health and my, my situation allows give to the kingdom and build the kingdom and serve God. In fact, in a lot of people's cases, this now means they've got a lot more time to serve God. And they're in a better position financially in order to be there for those who are in need and for the church. Great, but it is sinful 
to say to yourself, well, I'm done with that chapter of my life. Now I'm moving on to one that is all about me. All about living in leisure. All about self-indulgence. It's not money that's the root of evil. It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. Look in the scriptures. You see lots of rich people. Some are great examples. Some are terrible examples. The bad examples fall into these bad categories when their hearts go in the wrong position. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. He he even destroys Jerusalem and still God's like, well, I think I can work with you. You recognize that I'm great. I'll, I'll, I'll use you for my glory if you will be used until the day that he looks out and says, behold, Babylon the great, which I have built. And he takes the glory for himself. And God says, okay, I think you need to be rebuked and disciplined. It turns him into some kind of weird like eagle guy for a while. It's a funny story. You should read it. We have the rich fool here. Where does he get off base? Not by having a good year, but by saying to himself, I will put it all back into myself. I won't even let God's name enter the picture or the question. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Why does Jesus say to him, sell all you have, give to the poor, then you're ready to follow me? Because he looks at him and says, you love your riches what you have more than you love me, more than you love your creator and, and you, who will be your savior, Jesus Christ. So you have to go and, and rid yourself of that. Even King Ahab really falls in, down in the, the kind of irreversible pit of, of being a bad example king when he really, really, really wants that vineyard, but you won't give it to me and you won't sell it to me. And then his wife says, okay, I'll go have him killed. Are you happy? Well, actually, yes, I am. But look at men like Job. He's rich. He loves God. He prays for his children. He gives a, a tithe to uh, God. And he does all the things that one would expect a righteous man to do. And then suddenly it's all taken from him. He still loves God. He still serves God. And he still does not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing. And then it's all restored to him. Twice over, he has even more. And you look at it and you go, oh, well, well, what's different? Well, how much he has. What's not? How much he loves and serves his God. I mean, we could look at Lydia. It, when, when Paul converts Lydia, he doesn't say, well, the first problem we have to deal with is that you are a woman of means. We've got to get rid of those means. No, he says, well, how could you then use the gifts you have, the blessings you have to bless others? Well, first of all, you've got a huge house. How about we meet there? How about it's the church that meets in Lydia's house? How about you help fund missionaries? My missionary activities going overseas. How about you start using the things you've been entrusted with for the gospel. And you know, you can say the same thing with things like fame. You can say the same things with things like people looking up to you. You see this happening all the time. Either you use it just to build yourself up and set yourself above others, your position, your authority, your wealth, or you use it to shine a light on Jesus Christ. In Romans 12, verse 8, giving to others is listed as a spiritual gift alongside teaching and leadership. And you say, well, you can't actually exercise that gift unless you have things to give. And so the the problem with the rich fool here is that he is living as if there is no God and he lacks wisdom. Not because he doesn't lack money. He doesn't recognize that in this moment he's being tested. There's a test because if you are given a little and you're faithful with a little, God will give you more. And if you're faithful with a little more, God will give you more because being faithful with it looks like giving of who you are and what you have to serve the kingdom. But if you're not faithful with anything, apparently God calls your number up. We see this happening here and we read of it elsewhere, even in the scripture and throughout church history. 
God says to him, fool this night, your soul is required of you and the things you have, whose will they be? Whose will they be? They will be useless. This all reminds me of the classic episode of that great American television show, Little House on the Prairie. Season four, episode 18, The Inheritance. You know what I'm talking about. Every day in the 80s, my sister and I would come home from school and watch one episode of Little House on the Prairie. Maybe the man I am today. But in this episode, Pa finds out via letter or telegram or something fancy that they've got this huge inheritance coming. And the Ingalls family, which has struggled through lots of hard winters, is now going to be set. And things begin to change immediately. People who were close to them begin to pull back a little. People who were cold to them suddenly are their best friends. Oh, I want to be very close. They start buying and buying and buying, and then they start fighting amongst themselves, even though they were the all-American family that loved each other. And near the end of the episode, the inheritance comes in, and they pop the top on it and look in, and it's all Confederate money. It's worth nothing at all. And even though now they're in kind of a tight situation, and they're all disappointed, visibly disappointed, they're also glad. Because they've been relieved of this thing that was tearing them apart. And they're able to go back to being who they had been. I used to have a t-shirt that had a, a bunch of fish swimming in one direction, another fish, like an ichthus fish, a Jesus fish, going against the flow. And that's what it said, go against the flow. And it had Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think this is one area in which we have to be very careful to go against the flow. Because even though it's not the 80s, even though it's not Trans Ams and mountains of cocaine and everybody talking about buying new VCRs, this is still undergirding our society. Wanting more, wanting the newest, wanting the shiniest, having to have the best things all the time. Newer is better. You've got to upgrade. You've got to get more. You've got to keep on doing this. And this is even, you can even see this amongst people who, who advocate for the simple living and live in tiny houses and stuff. Yeah, you've got to have the best one. It's got to be really, really, really sharp. And I've got to keep on making better ones and better and bigger and nicer or smaller and nicer or whatever the case. To do that, though, is to actually turn the created order on its head. We were created in God's image to worship him and serve him and glorify him with everything we're given. We use everything we have to glorify him. But in Romans 1, we read that we turned that backwards. And instead, we serve the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Finally, the last passage or last verse in this passage here. So is the one, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's kind of an odd saying, rich toward God. To be rich toward God is to be poor in spirit. Is to say, I come to you with nothing in my hands. You save me with nothing in my hands. And then everything you put in my hands, I use as a thank you to you. I, I enjoy my life because you have been, you've been faithful to me and give me the ability to enjoy my life. But my life isn't ultimately all about me. It's all about you recognizing that anything I have is a mercy given to me by God. And at any point, he can reassume control of all of it. And ultimately, at the end, he does all at once take all of it. And then who will own all these things that you have, all these things that have given you all this comfort and all this status and all the rest that goes along with it. 
It's an awful lot like when you leave a job and you think to yourself, isn't it weird that that won't be my office anymore? My little key card won't buzz me in anymore. My code's no good anymore. And at this point, what I have is what I've contributed there. Not the office, not the perks, not the private washroom or anything I had before. I have now what I have accomplished. And when you think about how we are given all of these things to glorify God, at the end of the day, what will we have but what we've done for the kingdom of God? What is our own? Not even our souls. This guy, this guy says, I will take my stuff and build for myself my own sense of security. And then he says to my soul, soul, that word psuche means self or soul or mind. And he thinks that he is his own. We have to recognize as those who follow Jesus, we're not our own. And anything we have is not our own. We are stewards. A steward is someone who spends on behalf of someone else. In Luke 8, we're told that there are a number of women that followed Jesus and bankrolled his ministry. One of them was the wife of Herod's steward. Meaning that this is somebody who spends Herod's money on his behalf. That's not a job you want. You are kept very, very closely watched. And a good steward will spend someone else's money as if it was their own. That meticulously, that carefully, that, that honestly, a bad steward actually thinks it is their own. And they use it for whatever they want. And eventually the whole thing blows up and they wind up in prison. You've heard these things. I think this has been just a wonderful thing for our church both for our, our sense of community here and identity and for what it does to inform how each of us lives as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It was 12 years ago tomorrow that Pat Hernandez first emailed me and said there is a Burmese congregation looking for a place to worship. Do you think Judson would be willing to do that? I said, well, yeah, right before I got here, we had the Doors of Healing Tabernacle meeting here. They're open to that kind of thing. Suddenly we've got a group here. Eh, just 14 people. Until six weeks later when it's 28 people. And a year and a half later when it's a gazillion people. And you start thinking, whoa. Our place is looking a little bit rougher than it used to. And they have that shine. There's so many kids running around. So much stuff going on. And to watch you people say, you know what? This is God's house though. It's not our house. And we'd rather more people be able to serve Jesus and worship Jesus here than less and then the next time, hey, some of our Nepali friends are here today, God bless you, when, when uh, GS and Nirmal and the others came and said, hey, we're not Burmese. Took like 20 minutes for me to realize that. We're Nepali, Bhutanese Nepali, and we think God wants us to worship here. And I'm like, no, we've already got one. No, we think God wants us to worship. Okay, and I come to the church. Yeah, sounds good. We've got room. It's a big building. It's silly for it to just sit there. Okay, fine, all right. Now, of course, the, the Burmese church, the Chin church, outgrows the facility and moves somewhere else. Oh, hi, Eric, who attends here. We're thinking of starting a Swahili language service. You know the story. And then here comes Pastor Jeremiah and Maricela. Hey, we've got a Spanish. And I go, there's a group of people here who recognize something a lot of churches don't, which is this building, this thing, this all of this stuff, it's not ours. It's God's given to us to steward. And once we start to recognize that, I think that is, that's the one big hump churches have to get over 
in order to start saying, let's, let's stop being a social club that comes together and just kind of slaps each other on the back and enjoys good conversation and bad coffee or whatever. Let's actually go out. Let's go out. And when churches start recognizing this whole thing, it's not about us alone. It's about glorifying God in every way we can. That's a, that's a, a huge, a huge accomplishment for a church. Kind of a, a, a jump forward, punctuated equilibrium and sanctification. Let that blow back into your life as well. I've been trying to do that. Because guess what? My house that my wife and I have our names on the deed, guess what? It's not ours. Anywhere in this building is ours. It's God's. How can we use what we have for God's glory? How can we use the opportunities that are afforded us? How can we use the wealth that we're given such as it is? How can we use anything God puts in our care for His holy name? How can we help people in times of need? I'll tell you what, what's been so cool, and I think I spoke on this just a little while ago, I don't want to be a broken record, but as the pastor here, I get to see so many things you don't. And over the last almost 17 years, I've been blown away by the number of people in this church without the right hand knowing what the left hand is doing, helping people who are in need. Some people who have been quite well off doing that and doing it with insane generosity. Some people I thought were destitute turning around and saying, actually, I've been putting away some money. I want to help that person too. Because they want to do it anonymously, I get to be like, the messenger, and I get to know about it all, so it's kind of neat. But listen to me, there is such an amazing blessing for the giver. Jesus himself said it is better to give than to receive. So how are your investments doing if we're thinking in a spiritual way? Where is your treasure? Those are the last two verses I asked Valerie to read. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't store up all your stuff in one basket right here on this earth, in this transitory, here today, gone tomorrow, can't take it with you, sphere and plane. Listen to me. You can't take it with you. Moth and rust come and destroy. Thieves break in and steal. Thieves will steal a 2,000 Camry I found out recently. What do they want with that? You'd think, well, big deal, right? That's an old crummy car. Even then, I had to say, gosh, I liked that, and I'm so angry that it's gone. And I had to be reminded, Zach, everything you have, it's God's. Everything you have is God's. Put your treasure somewhere that it cannot be stolen, where it cannot be destroyed by entropy or time or rust or fire. Put your treasure in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message to be on guard against greed because you're against it. Lord, we pray that we too would be against it. We pray that our heart's inclination would be to flee from it as we would flee from youthful lusts, the love of money and sexual immorality, all are things that scripture tells us to flee from. And we pray that we would flee from the love of money, recognizing it could shipwreck not only our faith, but our very lives, our relationships with our family, our friends, our loved ones. Lord, save us from the love of money, from avarice and the, the friendship with shiny things. Lord, we pray that whatever you have given us, whatever you have granted us, we would be thankful, we would use it, and we would be, Lord, kind with what we have, generous with what we have. 
that we would reach out and welcome others into our homes and into our lives, that, Lord, we would want to be people who are members of the kingdom that can be remembered in ages to come as those who did not hold on tightly, but who held a loose grip on the temporary things of this world. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.